we all love stories of transformation. Lots of us enjoy spending time laboring over a project, gradually seeing it come to completion. Maybe you enjoy cooking or baking, taking and transforming a pile of raw and, and possibly unappetizing ingredients into something that is truly delicious. Maybe your interests lie in restoring a classic car or some other kind of vehicle, taking it from being a seized collection of rusted parts and transforming it into something that looks as if it has just rolled off its production line. Maybe, like myself, you don't have a big project like this, but you still enjoy mending and repairing things that have been damaged or are not just working as they ought, and you are pleased when you can bring them back to how they ought to be. Or maybe you're here tonight and you are not the practical sort at all, but you still love a good transformation story. TV and social media are full of transformation stories just like this. We see lots of programs, things like Changing Rooms or 60 Minute Makeover, homes under the hammer, and countless social media influencers who show us tantalizing transformations of people's homes with those famous before and after shots. On a smaller scale, there's the BBC Repair Shop series that some of you might be familiar with, where people bring broken objects that they have perhaps inherited that have special sentimental meanings to them. And these objects have fallen into disrepair or been damaged. And the series follows the work of the skilled craftspeople who bring these little treasures back into life. Maybe you prefer the transformation of a sports team under new management and watch with interest as they work towards the goal of increasing successes. But I think you'll agree with me that we all find a sense of enjoyment satisfaction and perhaps even encouragement in a good transformation story. And tonight, I want us to look together at Ephesians chapter 2. And please do open up your Bibles again to this passage, and you'll be able to follow along as we look at this together. I would like us to be both challenged and thoroughly encouraged by this passage as we look at it tonight. This passage of Scripture deals with a transformation story well beyond any other that you will ever read or hear about or see on social media. It, it shows us the transformation that Christ Jesus can make in our lives. And Paul starts with a punishingly honest description of our spiritual state without Jesus. And we read that in Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 1 to 3. Paul says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. This is our before picture, if you like. 
from our transformation story. This is the natural or default setting of our hearts and our spiritual life. Paul tells us that we are dead, dead in our transgressions and sins. This is certainly intended to be a shocking description, but one that the Bible makes clear applies to each and every one of us. In another book that Paul has written, Romans um, chapter 5 and verse 12, he explains that just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. David perhaps puts it in a more straightforward way in Psalm 51. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. In summary, we are innately sinful. In Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, as part of Paul's great courtroom-like description of salvation, he explains that as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have become together worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. This passage, these passages make it clear that we all have sin in our lives. And Paul describes sin as the cause for our spiritual death. But what, what does he mean? Humanly speaking, death is the ultimate and total incapacity of our bodies. It removes our motor functions, our ability to sense or perceive our surroundings through touch, smell, taste, sight, or hearing. Our brains cannot function, never mind think or plan any action. Our heart cannot beat, nor our lungs breathe. Our bodies are powerless and helpless. Paul uses this very vivid picture of death to illustrate and describe the severity of our spiritual condition without Jesus. We are totally unable to do anything spiritually, totally unable to please God, as we read in Romans chapter 8, totally unable to do any good, as we read in Romans chapter 7, and therefore totally unable to save ourselves. And this is, of course, not what we really want to hear. We see ourselves, on the whole, as strong and independent people, often with the attitude that we can do anything with the right amount of time, resources, and effort. We think that we have quite a lot of good or attractive qualities. Sure, there might be parts of us that ourselves and even others um, might like to be different, but at the end of the day, deep down, we tend to think that we are not that bad. We tend to automatically fall into a sense that we can somehow earn God's favor. The good thing that you did last week, that volunteering, giving some money to a local charity, coming here. We tend to think that somehow all of these things on their own will somehow earn God's favor and see us 
okay with him. Hearing that we are like an inanimate corpse before God, unable to do anything to please him, is challenging for us. Not being able to do is alarming if we are depending on works to save us. But nonetheless, God's word shows us how we are in his sight. And we've thought about that in recent weeks. We are by nature sinners who live, as explained in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. This makes us, as verse 3 continues, by nature objects of God's wrath. Sin has consequences and sin separates us from God. In Bible class, we might try to teach it that it is anything that we say or think or do that breaks or fails to keep God's perfect law. In the words of the Shorter Catechism, sin is any want of conformity onto or transgression of the law of God. We know from these passages that we have just been looking at that we are born with sin in our hearts and that our nature is by default to sin more. God, on the other hand, is holy and without sin. He cannot overlook it. We cannot hide it. And God must punish it. Ultimately, by eternal separation from his grace and mercy and punishment in hell forever. We are, as Paul puts it in this passage, objects of his wrath. And folks, this is a bleak situation that the opening verses of Ephesians chapter 2 paints for us. How are you responding to this portion of the Bible? If you're a Christian, can I challenge you to let this picture of how lost you were without Jesus fuel your thankfulness and your praise for the transformation that he has brought in your life? Do you recognize this enough as you pray to him and rely on him each day? Do you rejoice in the transformation that he has worked in you? Or perhaps you're not a believer here tonight. Are you made uncomfortable by this passage so far? Has it maybe offended you in some way? Has it made you think differently about how you see yourself, given that it describes how God, your creator, sees you without Jesus as your savior? Do you see that your sin makes you helpless and hopeless and unable to rescue or redeem yourself with God? But Paul doesn't end his letter at verse three, thankfully. That would leave us all here without hope and facing certain punishment forever. But in verse four, Paul pulls back the curtain, revealing the huge transformation that Christ makes in lives. If you like, he paints the after picture for us in amazing detail. And we go on now to study that. Paul bursts out with the wonder and transformation that God works in the lives of those who trust in him. Verse four, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace we have been saved. In this short phrase, Paul explains what God does for us, why he does it, 
and how Jesus Christ is central to it all. John chapter 3, verse 16 will be known, I imagine, to everyone here this evening. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus lived a sinless life that we could never live and died on the cross to take the punishment of those who would believe in him, rising again to show us that he is God and that his work was completed. Romans 5 verse 6 explains that at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And notice how this little verse from Romans so clearly fits in with what we've been studying tonight. At just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. In sin, we are powerless and helpless, and Christ died to rescue us. We come back to Ephesians. We read in chapter 1, verse 7, which is just before what we read this evening, that in Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. God deals fully and finally with our sins through Jesus. He alone brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life. He does this out of, verse 4, love, mercy, and grace. We are saved and transformed by grace. It's not something which we can earn or generate in ourselves. As one commentator puts it, God's mercy on his helpless enemies, that's us, flows from his own loving heart, not from anything that they have done to deserve it. And it's so important that we understand that this is something that God does. God makes us alive in Christ, as we read in verse 5. It's so important that Paul actually goes over this again to make sure we haven't missed it or understood. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, you get a sense of repetition. For it is by grace you have been saved, we read again, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This whole passage that we have read tonight, um, the study Bible that I was using pointed out that it's actually one very big sentence in, in, in Paul's own writing, in the language that he used. So you can get a sense that he's just just telling this with such enthusiasm and, and trying to communicate the gospel to his readers. Another way to illustrate being made alive in Christ is to think about Christ being our representative, that we are alive in him. Um, think on him as our representative or a covenant head. And in 1 Corinthians 15, um, verses 47 to 48, um, describes two men, the first man, Adam, and the second man, Jesus. We read in those verses, the first man was of the dust of the earth, and the second man was from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth, and as of the man from heaven, so are also those who are from heaven. Ted Donnelly, a local Reformed Presbyterian minister, in his book on heaven and hell, tells of the illustration that one of the Puritan theologians from many years ago, Thomas Goodwin, made of this passage or of this situation that we are thinking about. We read in, in this book um, that he imagines two great giants, one called Adam and the other called Christ, and each is wearing an enormous leather belt 
with millions of little hooks on it. You and I and all humanity are hanging either on Adam's belt or on Christ's belt. There is no third option. There is no other place for us. And God deals with us only through Adam or through Christ. If you are hanging at Adam's belt, you share in the experience of sinful, fallen Adam, and your entire relationship with God is through him. But if you are hanging at Christ's belt, all God's dealings with you are through Christ. When you received Jesus as your Savior, you were involved in a massive and momentous transfer. The Almighty himself unhooked you from Adam's belt and hooked you on to Christ's. So now you have a different head, a different mediator, a new representative. You have passed from Adam and into Christ. And whereas God formerly dealt with you only through Adam, now God deals with you only through his son. You are in Christ unchangeably and forever. This should inspire us to so much praise and thankfulness in our hearts if we are saved here tonight. That God would want to save me, a person lost in sin and therefore deserving his punishment rather than his grace is incredible. That he would do it not because of any perceived good quality or good nature in me seems so opposite to how we would be humanly motivated that he saved me when I was totally turned against him, provides so much security and assurance. It has been said that the only thing we bring to our salvation is our sin, grasping that God rescues us by his grace and through faith gives us an unshakable assurance that we are safely his forever. If he loved us enough to save us before we could love him. Nothing we can do now is going to change that. Brother or sister in Christ here tonight, do you easily slip into a performance-based assessment of your salvation? I know I can. Does this lead to discouragement? Be challenged tonight by these truths about the extent of God's love for you and how completely and fully God saves us and loves us independent of anything that we could do or have done. You know, perhaps we don't really dwell enough on the extent of God's love for us as his redeemed people. We can think about it quickly, not grasp how much or how far um, his love is for us, or view it sometimes just a little bit superficially. We maybe allow it to be a fact that we accept as true and, and file away in our minds rather than living in the daily reality of an awareness of God's lavish love for us. Paul's prayer for the Ephesian believers, which we could go on and read in chapter 3, verses 17 to 19, was that they being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that they may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. 
and there were many things that he could have prayed for them, but that was what Paul chose to pray for them and highlights how much we need to pay attention to what he is talking about. By not dwelling on love enough, demonstrated through the gospel that we have studied here tonight, we rapidly lose perspective on how much God cares for us, how valued we are in his sight, and how richly he has acted towards us. This starves us of our fuel for a life of living sacrifice, of witness, and of service, which should all be worked out in response to God's overwhelming love for us. Verse 10 reminds us of this, that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Paul very carefully shows us that we are saved for good works, not by good works. He provides this as an important balance to his teaching on salvation through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. Our, our lives as Christians are to be characterized by good works. We're not to neglect those on the basis of salvation um, by grace. Just as we thought on the characteristics and the description of physical death and its illustration of spiritual death, we should now do well to reflect on the signs of spiritual life. And in the New Testament, it makes it clear that those are the fruit of the Spirit and the evidence of spiritual life in good works. In Matthew 7, um, verses 16 to 20, um, we read that by their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. We should expect the inner transformation that Christ makes in our hearts and in our standing before God to transform how we live our lives in the here and now towards other people as well. We read in Galatians chapter 5 that the fruit excuse me, of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, uh, self-control, faithfulness. Do we pray that God would grow these in our lives and strive with the Spirit's help to cultivate this fruit each day in the challenges and the opportunities that God puts or allows in our way? Can we see these qualities growing in our natures as we walk with Jesus? Be encouraged if you can. So how are we to live differently this incoming week in the light of this passage that we have studied Fellow believer, how do we better grasp the extent of God's love for us? And how do we allow it to transform our thinking and fuel our spiritual obedience to him? Will we pray along with Paul that we, along with our brothers and sisters here in Connor tonight, will grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ that we might know this love that surpasses knowledge and that we might be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God? Will we pray that our better grasping of the extent of his love for us will motivate us 
and fuel our daily witness and work for him. Will we be thanks-filled followers of Jesus, thankful for the great transformation that he has worked in us from spiritual death to being alive in Christ? And for those of you who have not put your trust in Jesus as your Savior, do you see the love that God holds out to you here in the gospel tonight? Do you see how you too can be transformed by grace and brought from spiritual death into life in Christ? Can you see the relief of sins forgiven and guilt atoned for and the freedom of this being given by grace rather than being impossible to earn by your own effort? God's word calls you to put your faith in Christ and to rely on him. Will you obey that call tonight? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come here and read from your word. We thank you that it is true, Lord, that it is breathed out by you and that it is useful in our lives. Lord, we thank you for the transformation that Christ brings in lives. Lord, we thank you that you bring us from being dead in sin to being alive in Christ. Lord, we thank you that you alone do that, Lord Jesus, through the punishment for our sin that you've taken on the cross, that our sin would be dealt with um, and atoned for, and that we would be given your righteousness as, as, your, as your brothers and sisters, Lord God, that you would um, make us right in your sight through your death um, and, and resurrection. Lord, we um, pray that you would help us to be transformed by the truth of that, that it would give us um, fuel for a life of obedience to you in living and being people who follow your word and apply it in our hearts, Lord. And we pray that tonight your word would have confronted us and challenged us. And Lord, we pray that as we um, begin to think about leaving tonight, that you would um, take your word and apply it to our hearts, that you would um, help us to not just be hearers of it tonight, but doers also. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name.